Well, we continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians. If you make your way to the book of Philippians, this also supplements our thematic year of being members one of another. And you may remember in our last study in Philippians, we began chapter 3. Well, we kind of began chapter 3 because we really only looked at the first phrase in chapter 3 and verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. And so we continue with this subject of joy by studying chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, beware while rejoicing. That might sound like a contradiction. It is not. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not irksome. It's not heavy. It's not grievous. But for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Beware while rejoicing. The title may seem contradictory, but you'll remember, for instance, in the book of Nehemiah, that while they were rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, it says in one place that with one hand, they gave themselves to the task of rebuilding the work, and with the other hand, with the other hand, they held a sword. In other words, they did not prayerfully, um, they did not work instead of pray. They did not pray instead of work. They prayerfully worked. And here in Philippians, the book on joy mentioned many times, I think up to 20 times, the word joy or rejoicing is used. The apostle Paul did not say, beware, be watchful of the enemies of the gospel without joy, nor did he say, just joyfully live out your lives in Christ without any care or concern about the enemies of the cross. No, he didn't say either one of those. He basically said, beware while you're rejoicing. And so from our text, Let's look at first verses 1 and 2, the commands. The commands which are given, and there are two imperative verbs. But before we get to that, it says finally in verse 1. And finally doesn't always introduce a closing statement like it does in chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are good, true, pure, think on these things. That is not what is going on here. In this case, it could be phrased, what's more? Or beyond that, rejoice in the Lord. And beyond that, and that's the usage here. And Paul is referencing what he had just said. And he said, I'm repeating it, and it's not grievous for me. It's not a bother for me. But for you, it is safe. And when I thought about that, it is safe. I did a word study on that. And it's pretty much what we uh, understand safety to be, security, the assurance that you are in good hands. And when I uh, went and had my Achilles tendon surgery, which, by the way, tennis this last past week for the first time in eight months. Aren't you thankful for that? <laughs> now, I hobbled a little bit, uh, and Ed gave me all that, uh, that uh, 
I wanted, uh, but I got to play. But when I had my surgery and I came back, I noticed that these handrails, my, are they secure. Oh, it le- and they didn't do this for me, by the way. Well, yes, they did, because I'm getting old, not because I had surgery. But, oh, that, immediately I was drawn to, this, to, uh, to these handrails from the property committee because they said, in essence, for us, it is not a bother because for you, it will be safe. That's what that means. The Apostle Paul is saying to them, I've said rejoice, and Lord, rejoice, Lord, rejoice, but beware. And giving you this warning is not tedious for me because it brings safety for you. You all understanding what that is saying. That is an important uh, part to consider that he had them. Yes, it is inspired, the text is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. But there's the heart of the apostle for his beloved Philippians as well that comes through here in verse 1. Now, the commands. There are two commands. They're both imperative. That is, the, the verbs are, are saying, you must do this. And one of them, the verbs, is rejoice. And we see that in verse 1. And the second one is beware. And we see that in verse 2. First of all, the first one, rejoice in the Lord. Notice how... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> ah. Uh, you all need to uh, give the First Lady a word of instruction that <clears throat> I'm not to do yard work on Saturday. <clears throat> it's very important that the preacher doesn't do any work, any, any honeydews, any household responsibilities until retirement. <clears throat> because it does go right to the vocal cords. I, I can't help it. The outward man is perishing. It doesn't say rejoice because it's pleasant for you necessarily. In a group this size, is there any, I want you to think about it in your own life. Is there anything about which you're concerned right now? Do you have any burden on your heart? Jennifer, anything on your mind? What's on your mind? Three young ladies in Haiti right now who don't have mommy and papa with them right now. Oh, to be sure, there's responsible oversight, but you're thinking about it, right? Anybody here with any kind of a concern or burden? Well, if you have any sense about you at all, (laughs) be concerned about me. (laughs) Be concerned about one another. Be concerned about how is it going with your kids, with your grandkids? What's going on with your health, with your job, and on with our country? Hello? Are you concerned? Oh, God, help us. And so it doesn't say rejoice in that everything is just peachy for you, but rejoice in the Lord because he is our sure and steady foundation. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to difficulty. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28, listen to this resume regarding those who were hassling him. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. In other words, I'm just, I'm just 
being, using hyperbole here. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths often. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. That is 39 stripes. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. I've been floating around out in the Mediterranean Sea for 24 hours. Now, that is scary. That is difficult. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of Robert, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that are outside, that which cometh upon me daily the care of all the churches. Yet he could say and mean it, rejoice because your rejoicing is in the Lord. It's within the sphere of the Lord, the sphere of his providence, the sphere of his power, the sphere of his presence in your life. So folks, you can, yea, you must rejoice in him because that's the only safe place to rejoice rejoice in the Lord. The believer's rejoicing is because of the ultimate joy which is found in Christ alone. Secondly, the second command, a beware triad. Now, a triad, and I did some study on this, talked about it in Sunday school this morning, is a set of three items, three nouns, which are collectively are one Unit. It's like a three-piece band. Each instrument stands alone, and yet when you gather them together, like we did with the four up here, the four singers, if that were a quadrat, I don't know what the word is, but they're individual. What was what would it be called? Quartet. <laughs> Hate it when that happens. <laughs> And it happens so often, by the way. A quartet, and yet they're collectively one unit. And that's what this is in verse 2. It's three distinct entities and yet one unit. And it's a dangerous triad. And it's so significant that the imperative verb beware is not just beware of dot, dot, dot. It's beware of this, beware of that, beware. Three times the imperative verb, the command is given in verse 2. I mean, you think just one, and I get it. Oh, okay, maybe you emphasize it again at the end. No, before each one of them, the body of Christ is commanded, watch out, this is coming, these are among you. Be aware, beware of each one of these. In fact... The apostles are full of giving warnings of false teachers, heretical doctrine. Paul called it doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. The apostle John said a theological heretic is like an antichrist in 2 John and verse 7. So we're to beware, very specifically. Beware of dogs. 
Beware of dogs. Throughout most of history, canines were not domesticated. They were not house pets. In fact, to the Jews in that day and back, a dog was considered dirty and dangerous. And Scripture does not identify a dog as man's best friend. Not at all. And I know you all are dog lovers. Most of you are. Any dog lovers? My hand is not up with you. I have a bit of zoophobia, a bit of an aversion to animals because I've had microbiology in college and I know how filthy they are. In Scripture, dogs are not man's best friend. And it gives us some insight about dogs, an emphasis added intentionally, Proverbs 26, 11, as a dog returns to his vomit, <clears throat> so a fool returns to his folly. So it's, it's juxtaposing a dog and a fool. And in <clears throat> Luke 16, 20, 21, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, thinking maybe they're going to get a full meal here pretty quick as soon as this one drops over dead. Scavenger really is the idea. And in Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, may enter in through the gates into the city, because outside are dogs and sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, whosoever loves to live by a lie. And so we see how dogs are characterized in Scripture. And the Apostle Paul warned the Philippians to beware of dogs. Now, the metaphor is likely a reference because it's plural here, beware of dogs, a, a metaphor of the, because dogs travel in packs, of the false teachers who also traveled in packs or maybe assembled together or they had a, <clears throat> a certain philosophy and it was altogether against the things uh, of Christ and against the gospel of grace. And he said to them to beware. Theologian Thomas Constable wrote, Jesus and other, uh, other um, prophets used the word dogs to refer to opponents of God's truth. And so, in essence, Paul is saying, beware of those who oppose gospel truth. And what was the gospel truth which was combating first century Christianity. Well, legalism, which came from Judaism, the Pharisees and the like, and weren't happy when folks were turning to Christ uh, by the thousands, the multiplied thousands. And so they, uh, they set up all kinds of roadblocks so that dogs could devour them, as it were, theological dogs. You know, you think about it. Scripture uh, is the message, the mail, M-A-I-L, which has been delivered to us. And we are the mailmen. And, of course, every dog loves to get a hold of the mailman's leg and sink the teeth in, right? That's infamous. We know that to be the case. Mailmen, male women are watching out for dogs who are going to attack. Well, because we're bringing the mail, the good news 
of the message of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, there's going to be dogs who are coming after us. We ought to expect it. Beware. And then secondly, beware of evil workers. You see, belief plays out in behavior, and false doctrine is impotent to change. It cannot change a heart because only the truth can set one free. Biblical truth. Therefore, they are bound in evil deeds. The dogs show their true identity by virtue of their evil lifestyles. And Jesus spoke about this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. When he wrote, wrote, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening <clears throat> wolves. In other words, they're, uh, they're a part of the, the canine club. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. I'm saved. I'm a good tree. But I can do things that I ought not do as a believer. Anyone identify with that? But the reason why you do not bring forth evil fruit being a good tree. First scripture says you can't. It's because does a fruit pop out in a moment? No. A fruit from a fruit tree begins budding. And it, it takes months and months and months to come to full fruition. But it's going to come to full fruition. Oh, to be sure, there may be an insect or two get into that. There may be some type of a a difficulty with drought. But over the course of its life, a peach tree bears peaches. It doesn't bear kangaroos. And so if you are one who truly is in the true vine, John 15, then you will have good fruit. But the evil workers are not in the true vine Therefore, they produce that which is evil. MacArthur wrote about this. Though the false teachers prided themselves on their supposed righteousness, they were in reality evil workers. Typically, those involved in external ritualistic ceremonial religion see themselves as doing good work and pleasing God. Only believers controlled by the Holy Spirit can do genuine good works. When I look at the first 20 years of my life, maybe you can identify with this or whatever number it was before you came to know the Lord. I did not do one single good work. A good work meaning for the glory of God alone. Not one. You hear what I'm saying? I can't. I couldn't. I was spiritually dead. Everything I did was tainted by my sin nature. And I was driven by that because of being a bad tree. It's going to bring bad or evil fruit. And so evil workers bring bad fruit. Now, what is an evil worker? Folks, let me say this uh, and buckle your seatbelt. 
any belief, theology, doctrine, teaching, philosophy, which is opposed to salvation by grace through faith in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone, anything outside of that and oppose that is evil. And those who hold to that fit into the category of dogs and evil workers beware, for they are out there everywhere. Now, either that is true or it's not. Either we draw a line in the sand and say, on this side are the righteous, and on that side are the unrighteous, the evil workers, which is why we have the truth of the gospel that we desire to share and say, come and see. And then you'll go and tell the good news of the gospel. Heretics invest, now notice, 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 it's not just evil folks. It's evil workers. It's it's the word there for work, for energy. The heretics actually invest energy, invest effort into their evil ways. Now, why are we to beware? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 says, evil company corrupts good morals. That's why in these formative years of our children, uh, uh, up to whatever that is, uh, until they've uh, established their own understanding, of, or their understanding has been established, better put it in the passive, um, of biblical theology. You must be pouring truth into them because the world doesn't have truth and it's going to corrupt that young mind. Y'all follow that? It's a, it's a declarative. Evil company, evil communications, evil companionship corrupts that which God intends to be good. So beware of evil workers. Thirdly, beware of mutilators. Beware of mutilators. Notice at the end of verse 2. Uh, beware of the concision or of the false circumcision. Now, the word circumcision is used in verse 3, if you will. For we, we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. And so here in verse 2, <clears throat> it's using the same um, it's using the same root word, which means a cutting around. Check that. It's using the same root word, which is to cut. But circumcision has a prefix, peri, like perimeter, around the meter. But this particular word, the concision, doesn't use that prefix, but uses a different prefix, which means just to stab. It's to mutilate. It's the concision. It's the false circumcision is what Paul is warning about. A form of this word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when Elijah was challenging the prophets of Baal in their idol worship. Let your God come down. If, you're, if your God is really all-powerful, all-strong, let your God. And so in 1 Kings 28, what did they do? They cried aloud. They cut themselves. It's the very same form of the word. After their custom with swords, lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. It was 
the very word and what Paul said to watch out for in that day. Greek scholar Ernest Campbell wrote, Paul is apparently using the word katatomain, mutilate, here, to paint a butchery picture, uh, underline included, uh, emphasis included, of uh, physical circumstances practiced for the purpose of religious merit. Paul's use of this word emphasized how much he detested what the Judaizers were doing, trying to force his converts to keep the law of Moses, particularly to be circumcised. Now, <clears throat> I don't, I'm, not, uh, I'm unsettled on this. Pastor Scribina, let me know what I should believe this week, if you would, on this point. Uh, and I don't say that facetiously. Either Paul was saying that there are those out there trying to and he's using the, uh, the term concision or mutilated circumcision metaphorically, that they're wanting you to keep the law like the Jews kept circumcision law, or there were actually Juda- Judaizers, those who said, you must first keep the law of Moses before you can be accepted with God, who actually were going about physically performing Mutilated circumcisions. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I really don't know if he's using it metaphorically or actually on that. So I'm going to withhold. But the fact of the matter is, in Paul's mind, whatever was actually happening in Philippi was a heinous thing. And the reason why uh, the jury is out in my mind on this, it's the only place in Scripture it's, it's used. Uh, uh, again, a form of it was used in First Kings... And that actually was physically what was going on. But we don't know that that was actually physically going on. So why, why, why circumcision? Why, why, what is this deal scripturally about circumcision? Well, it's a sign of the covenant, Jew, God, and Israel. Um, and the sin nature was passed on through man. Romans 5.12 says, For, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world. Wait a minute, Eve, Eve sinned first and then Adam. How is it by one man? Because he was the responsible head of the human race. And since he was the head, the buck stops with him. He is responsible for the sin nature. Sin passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And so to cut around the physical organ, which is the conduit to pass on the sin nature, it symbolized... The removal of the sin nature, of course, it doesn't remove the sin. It's a symbol any more than being baptized does anything about washing away your sin. It's a picture of your sin having been washed away. And so circumcision was a physical symbol of accepting the covenant, which, by the way, was given before the right, R-I-T-E, of circumcision. It was given to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12. I believe it wasn't until chapter 17 that the symbolic expression of the covenant took place. It was a symbol of what was supposed to be an inner reality. And, and Paul spoke to that to the Romans in chapter 4. He says, what shall we then say then? That Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. What about... What about his deeds in the body? 
For if Abraham were justified, made right with God by works, by human effort, he hath whereof to glory. He can glory to you. He can brag, but not before God. God knows better. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it, his belief, his faith was reckoned, counted, credited for righteous standing. And so going back to the father of the right of circumcision, Abraham, it was and always has been justification by faith alone. Circumcision is a physical symbol of the relationship God had with Israel. But the spiritual is needed. Physical circumcision without spiritual circumcision, which verse 3 says, is only religion and it's not righteousness. Jeremiah spoke to this in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Where it says, for the, actually the Lord spoke through Jeremiah. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart. Now that is getting very graphic. But you can see the theology going through the physical act of circumcision with your heart far doesn't help at all. Your heart's need need to be circumcised. The sin nature needs to be cut away. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of your evil. So it's religion without relationship when it's just the physical act. Those are the commands. Rejoice in the Lord. Beware of the dogs that is false prophets, of the evil workers, those whose fruit you shall be able to see, and of the mutilators thinking that observing a physical act, some kind of a religious act, is going to make one acceptable to God. It will not. The summary is verse 3. The summary. The commands are to rejoice and beware. The summary in verse 3 is that a proper theology of redemption is the only thing which will bring rejoicing. It's the only thing that will bring hope and life. Notice in verse 3, for we, that is we who have believed, are the circumcision. We worship God in the Spirit, not through the mechanisms and machinations of religion. That's not how we do it. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. And by the way, we don't have any hope in our own self-effort, is how that says at the end. This is a powerful text which reminds the Philippians how they were redeemed, where they came from, whose they are, and the reason for rejoicing. The flesh cannot save. Folks, there are two theologies in the world, and there have always been two theologies. And I close with this. The theology of biblical divine accomplishment in Christ, in which grace is freely offered, and only, the only path which leads to life, that's one philosophy, theology. And the other 
It's the theology of human effort through religion which cannot bring anything but death. That's all. Everything, uh, the whole world, all of history is weighed in the balance. Either one, Paul told them, receives and rejoices in divine accomplishment in Christ, the grace of God, faith in that, accepting that, being credited to your account, as it were, or you default to human effort. And I better get after doing all the good things to the point of mutilating a circumcision uh, surgery if that's what it takes. Beware of everything on that side of human effort is what this teaches. Paul reminded the Philippians, he reminds us today, that by virtue of the saving grace of God, we boast in Christ and not in our own feeble efforts. We reject our own feeble efforts. The end of verse 3, the flesh is not of any hope. It cannot produce righteousness, no matter what you try to make happen. It never has. Abraham believed, and it never will. Only the just can live by faith. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. Difficult text, but sought to understand it, communicate it. I certainly believe it. We believe it as your people. And you have done this good work in our hearts through faith in the finished work of Christ. We give you thanks. We praise you for that. And Lord, uh, even now, would you touch the hearts of those here as well as by internet who do not know you, who who have uh, tuned in, who have listened to this exposition of your word. And Lord, would you bring the needed repentance to the heart of a lost person, the needed faith to receive your grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of oneself. It's the gift of God. No one can boast. And so in the flesh, it profits nothing, but in Christ we have everlasting life. Bless this your word to our hearts. Lord Jesus, in your blessed name.